Today is the last episode of season one of Remade in America. As I think back on the launch of this podcast, I remember that I originally wanted to make a show about the experience of being an outsider in America. And while I think we achieved that goal, this show has really become about something else. Telling other people's stories. We have heard about Maz Jubrani growing up in two cultures. Maria Inahosa being the first Latina hired at NPR. And Breed Barrara convincing his classmates that Preet is in fact a real name. Even later this episode, we will hear a message from Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times telling us about a time that he felt like an outsider. Over the course of season one, Remade in America has become all about telling other people's stories. And I love that. The way you tell someone else's story matters. Today, we are going to talk to someone who built her career on telling other people's stories. People who don't otherwise have a voice. And she did it her way. I didn't want to feel that you had to read the front page of the New York Times to watch anything I worked on. Her name is Sheila Nevins. She was the longtime president of HBO Documentary Films. Sheila has won more awards than anyone I have ever heard of. Let me read straight from the internet for this part. Sheila has worked on productions that have been recognized with 35 News and Documentary Emmy Awards, 42 Peabody Awards, and 26 Academy Awards. And Sheila has won 32 individual Primetime Emmy Awards more than any other person. And she's joining us today to talk about telling other people's stories for her whole career. I'm Basim Youssef. This is Remade in America, presented by CAFE. I have been in New York the past few weeks, and I have to tell you, there are some amazing places to eat here. But I'll admit, after the excitement wore off, I just wanted a good home-cooked meal. I just wanted my sun basket. Now you can explore new flavors, cuisines, and ingredients every week. Like me, you can also get delicious recipes, organic produce, and clean ingredients delivered right to your door, all thanks to Sun Basket. Now you get more options than ever. Just go to the Sun Basket app and pick from 18 healthy recipe options every week. You can eat vegan, like me, or choose paleo, gluten-free, and many other options. Some Basket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh organic produce. And everything is pre-measured and easy to prep. You can get a healthy and delicious meal in about 30 minutes. Go to thesumbasket.com slash remade today to learn more and get $35 off your first order. That's sumbasket.com slash remade for $35 off. Sumbasket.com slash remade. Okay, back to Remade in America presented by Cafe. Today, we're talking to the queen of documentaries, Sheila Nevins. She was a little reluctant to tell me about herself at first, so she tried to do it all at once, as fast as possible. I don't have anything to say, really. I've worked my whole life. I I have a child. I have a husband who's put up with me for 44 years. I'm at the last lap of my life. I don't have any inhibitions anymore because what the hell. I'm a woman. 
I achieved in a world where women don't achieve, and I'm bored with it all. Yeah, but the thing is, I'm curious. Sheila is 78 years old and recently left her job at HBO. She spent her whole career being a creative person. And she told me that she believes that all creativity comes from pain. So I had to ask, Sheila Nevins, where did your pain come from? Oh, everything. I mean, uh, my mother was disabled. So my mother had Raynaud's disease and scleroderma, Mm -hmm. pernicious Mm -hmm. scleroderma. So she had a series of amputations. So I never took fingers or toes or arms or legs for granted because every year or two years of my life, one of them disappeared off my mother. From the time she was 15, she had... um, she was the first person in the United States to have something called a sympathectomy. You know what that is? didn't work. Mm-hmm. So she basically, every cut was gangrene eventually. And so I grew up with that. And so I'm very sensitive to that. But I'm very funny. Yeah. You see? And that's the point. But, but here's the thing. You, you're this I'm funny in an operating room. I'm funny. I'm funny. I'm funny because I'm so sad. This is, this is not just pain. This is you being growing up as an outsider. Yes. Did you feel that you didn't belong growing up? I felt that I was different. Did you feel that you were different? Yeah. How? I felt that uh, I didn't belong to medical school. People were too much into their work, and I wanted to have fun. Was it a school for rich little boys? So I, I come from a middle-class uh, family that didn't come from a lot of money, but they put a lot of money into my education, so I went to a higher-tier school. So I felt as an outsider because I was not rich as the other kids. We're very similar that way because my father was a Russian immigrant. He was, on his birth certificate, it said, um, baby boy Russian, two to five. And he was also a gambler. And I had a wealthy uncle who got him a job in the post office. And his job was boxing mail, but his real job was booking bets. Mm -hmm. So I went to private schools. I went to... Um, Little Red Schoolhouse, I went to Downtown Community School, I went to the High School of Performing Arts, I went to Barnard, I went to Yale, but I never was... Part of those people. No, I was never blue blood. Never blue blood. Never blue blood. I mean, you would know, you're a doctor. Yeah. Is a blue blood blue? uh, Actually, blue blood means it's deoxygenated and it's a sign of death, so... (laughs) So then it's not good to be a blue blood. It's not good So where does that expression come from? I have no idea. You must tell more doctor jokes. Yes, I will. Because every big medical school and has a large auditorium, you'd be very funny there. We got off track. A lot. I would have interrupted Sheila, but she kept complimenting me. My producers were furious with me after. But I gotta say, I loved it. Okay, let's get back to the interview. I asked Sheila about being a powerful woman in Hollywood back in the 60s and 70s. Did you feel that men were afraid or were they just like acting No, I as... knew they were in control mm. and I was afraid of them. Mm. But I knew it didn't feel right and I knew the only way to get equal was to be flirtatious and be seductive and be eclectic in some way, but be obedient at the same time. I mean, I managed difference and sameness as a companion, which is a very difficult combination. Does that make sense? It does, but like it... it it's overwhelming. It's 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 confusing. But you're me. in your forties. I'm in my seventies, darling. I no, mean, no, we're from a different. I could be your grandmother. No, no, no. Here's here's what confuses me. Would you me. want me to be your grandmother? No, oh, I want you to be <laughs> my lunch date tomorrow. So so he he. Who will pick up the check? Me. Of course. Oh, okay, fine. Okay, okay. so yeah. so here here is what this is what confuses me. How come you're 
on this track of obedience, of uh-huh. being a follower, yes. where does the shift happen? That where you... With salary and money. Mm-hmm. It happens with salary and money. You start to talk back and separate yourself from your obedience, at least in the culture that I grew up, when your pay is equal. Because then you feel you were worth it and you can talk back. But it's hard. It's very difficult. Women have only recently asked for equity in, in salaries. I mean, I think that's more important than physical, than being groped. The pay, the, I was going to say fucking paycheck. The paycheck is everything in this country. Being able to buy something. I mean, my goal in life before I die, which as, as a doctor you could tell me might be imminent, my goal in life is to go into a store and not look at the price tag. I grew up with girls, little girls, who would say, I want that for my 16th birthday party. I want that dress over there. And they would go in and buy it. But I d- couldn't do that. I, want, I still can't do it. I look at the price tag and I say, is this worth, is that bag worth $800? Sheila got promoted, made more money, and eventually found herself at the top of the entertainment industry. I wanted to know what she thought about the Me Too movement from her unique perspective. As with every other topic, Sheila doesn't tow any party lines. She shared her specific take with me. I think you cannot... Just like in crime, we don't throw everybody in the legal system in the United States. First of all, you're innocent until proven to guilty. I'm not sure that happened with everybody. I think people like Harvey and Kevin and Matt, I think these people, all of whom I know, um, possibly were criminals and deserve to be thrown away. I think in the process, maybe a lot of people were tapped and thrown into that same pot boiler without really necessarily needing to turn the flame up so high. Mm -hmm. But I don't know that. Um, So I feel sorry because I feel in the way it's going to reflect on women. I mean, is the boss going to be able to travel with you? Mm. Is he going to be able to take you on a trip? Are you going to be able to go to his room to have a meeting? I mean, assuming he's not running around naked in his undershorts. Um, I think that your hands are tied to be for equality almost. For instance, I will kiss you goodbye. We yeah. kissed you when you met. You kissed my hand. I kissed your hand. Hmm. I, you know, I don't know. In a workplace, if you did that, I don't know. I, can you do that? I don't think so. No, I don't think. I so. don't think you can do that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's problematic because physical closeness and proximity is not always sexual. It may be just simply affection and support. So I think men are just in a, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I don't really know. I don't know the answer. Hmm. I think it was necessary to have the revolution. I don't know about the aftermath. It takes a great deal of honesty to admit that you don't know the answer, that you are still figuring something out. And Sheila is one of the most honest people I have ever come across. While I consider whether it's a good idea or not to kiss my producer's hand before each studio session, let's take a break and talk about our sponsors. Afterwards, Sheila and I will talk about things like winning awards, giving back, and saving pelicans. You heard me, pelicans. So don't leave us. Hiring is challenging. Maybe if Sheila had ZipRecruiter, she could have found fascinating subjects for documentaries more quickly, made more movies, and won even more awards. Well, we will never know. But if you don't have 32 Emmys to your name and you just have normal hiring needs, 
there is one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Remade. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Remade. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash R-E-M-A-D-E. ZipRecruiter.com slash Remade. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Remade in America is also brought to you by Casper. As we near the end of the first season of Remade in America, I gotta say, podcasting is hard work. I am tired and I can't wait to catch up on my rest by sleeping on my Casper mattress. Ah, just talking about it makes me sleepy. (sighs) Support for Remade in America comes from Casper, a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience, one night at a time. At Casper, mattresses are perfectly designed for humans. They are engineered to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. In medical school, they call that your gluteus maximus. Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amount of both sink and bounce. Casper offers free shipping in the US and Canada. And if you aren't completely satisfied, Casper makes it easy to return your mattress at no charge and no hassle. In fact, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100 nights risk-free sleep on a trial. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash remade and using promo code remade at checkout. That's casper.com slash remade and promo code remade for $50 towards select mattresses. Term and conditions apply. Okay, back to Remade in America presented by Cafe. Sheila thrived as a documentary producer. Oscars, Emmys, Peabody Awards. I wanted to know her secret to success. What was the decision that you decided to make in order to change the game in HBO? That's a good question. Um, To reach people, Mm. to not be esoteric, to not talk to myself or to the educated, to not um, restrict reality to the 1%. So you felt that documentaries before HBO documentaries were not listening to people. You, there you mean were like a few that snuck in here and there. There was a Barbara Koppel documentary about coal mines and unions, and but I felt that the politics of documentary were not democratic enough. That they huh. were esoteric, liberal, elitist. And elitist. I, I didn't want to feel that you had to read the front page of the New York Times to watch anything I worked on. I wanted to feel that you would be a little forlorn and that you might learn and you might not and that you would have spent a pleasant time seeing people that were like yourself, maybe a little more honest than yourself and therefore you were intrigued by their honesty, but, you know, whether they were murderers or victory, victors or whatever, or, you know, that they were you. Like when you cut a person open. Yes. Did you ever find two people that were different when you looked inside? No, inside every... And, unless you have a genetic disease. Well, no, we're not talking about that. We're talking mm. about the, the human body as conceived and perpetrated as the species. When it is opened up... Look, o- almost look, the same. Almost the same. Mm-hmm. 
in an operating room, nobody has a name really. Hmm. So was that a kind of a process or like a eureka, aha moment? It was a process. Sheila's process worked, of course. Great success followed. And Sheila shared that success by changing the way she went about her business. So, so wh- when you arrived at, like, reach where you were, how did you change your work environment around you? I got nicer. No, but, but like the people around you. I got nicer to the people around me because I felt that I didn't want them to go through what I went through. And that if I could help, I, I'm not a nice person, but I'm generous if I think someone's hurting. I mean, a big, a big issue or a big narrative in this conversation is pain. And you've been, you actually reached to your position through pain. And then you look back and you find all of these women mm-hmm. that you've raised up mm-hmm. and you wanted them to avoid Not all them. of them. Some of them I detest. <laughs> the people that you liked. <laughs> okay. Some of them I wish ill. I'm and, capable of wishing ill. And, 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 and this is what I meant by changing the work environment. Right. What did you change for them? I, those who I thought were loyal, mm-hmm. that's my favorite word, those who I thought were true to me and to themselves, I tried to make the path for them clear. Those who I felt were acting, oh, Sheila, you have a headache. Stay home, I think. Uh, I wished ill. I lost count of how many awards you've got. Was that important to you to get these awards there? Darn right. Darn right. Yeah, because a lot of people are like, I don't care about the awards. Please. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. Of course I cared. Mm -hmm. I cared to be the most. I cared to be the best. When grades would be posted, I would be there waiting for them to be posted, whereas other women would come and, okay, I went to Barnard, they would wait until they were posted. Was there a certain documentary that was closer to your heart, like a kind of a child, something that you really enjoyed doing? I enjoyed every, I mean, not, not enjoyed is a bad word. I was obsessed with almost everything I ever did mm-hmm. in the sense that I would dream it. And I, I couldn't stand that because I, I wanted to dream like other people, like I was falling down a well. I didn't want to dream about, you know, something I was working on. But for some reason, I, my subconscious was invaded by what I was working on. That's how deeply I was invested Maybe now that I'm not working at HBO, I'm working on a few docus and finishing them up, but maybe now I could have dreams that could be really much more profoundly insightful. I mean, what is a dream? What is a dream? You know, you cut open things. uh, It's a projection of your thoughts. Like it's an outlet of your Where do your thoughts come from? Does an animal think? Maybe. As much as we do? I don't know. Do you have a dog? No, but I have a one-year-old close enough. The thing is, if a kid looks out the window at a dead squirrel on mm-hmm. the road, most parents would say, don't look. But I love when a child looks at death because when a child looks at death, he thinks they're going to come back. Mm. That's the great thing about peekaboo. You hide and you come back. You hide and you come back. That's why kids love that game. But I was sitting in a car with a two-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old, and um, there was a dead, like, I don't know what kind of animal. It had a big tail. It could have been a squirrel. And she said, don't know, don't let him say it, don't let him, don't look at that. I, I said, I'm curious. I said, look, there's a, a dead so-and-so. I said, I feel sorry for him. He said, no, no, Sheila, he's coming back. Wow. Sheila is amazing. You ask her a question about winning Oscars and Emmys, but end up talking about death and small animals. In fact, small animals came up again in our conversation. I asked Sheila about her favorite documentary. It's going to surprise you because mm. it was about a pelican. Mm. 
um, there was an oil spill. I like to think of a way to approach a popular story that is different than everybody else is going to approach it. Okay, so there was an oil spill in New Orleans, and everybody wanted to get BP and, you know, the environmentalists and all that. And on CNN, I saw a pelican with his arms covered with oil. And I, I, I don't like pelican. I don't even know what a pelican I, you know, But I, somehow, it, when he was in trouble, I loved him. Now, if he was flying, I probably wouldn't have even looked at him. But it was just a little tiny piece, and he was lifting his arms, and he couldn't because the oil was so heavy on his feathers. So I did a film called um, Pelican 895. I went and found a group that was trying to rehabilitate pelicans. But we found one pelican. We put him through rehab with these volunteers, these young kids who have good hearts, you know. And uh, we watched him for seven weeks. Remember, he had never learned to fly, the one that we picked. He was a baby. And the way a pelican learns to fly is from his mother. But he didn't have a mother. So we watched him, and they teach him how to fly. They clean his wings with, you know, little Q-tips and take it off. It was an absurd film, but I was invested in this film. And every day I would call and find out what he was doing, what, what he was up to. And he had this number because they, he was the 895th bird that they were trying to rescue. Many of them died because they just couldn't breathe. You would know why they couldn't breathe more mm-hmm. than I, but they breathe through their wings. Mm-hmm. That's what gets to their heart. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the last day, is this boring? No, no, no. Okay, no, no. so then on the last day, when the pelican was going to be returned to the waterside to see if he could fly, they took Pelican 895. I cried all night because I thought I wasted HBO's money. Nobody knows about this. I'm going to cry now when I talk about it. He's going to die anyway. I spent so much money on this thing, and, um, you know, this is life, you know? The poor little pelican trying to fly and then a fucking oil spill. So Pelican 895 gets to the waterside, and we're all listening on the phone, and we're with the music guy, and he needs to finish this film, and he doesn't know what the ending is. He doesn't know whether Pelican 895 is going to fly or whether he's just going to eventually die or look for scraps of food and not be a pelican at all. And we watch it, and he lifts his wings, and I say, what's happening? He's lifting his wings. Is he walking? No, he put them down again. He's walking, looking around. Yeah, and what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? And then, he must have had a good agent. We should find out who his agent is. He spreads, I know this now from the film. I didn't know this from the phone. He spreads out his wings. Now, this is a bird who has never been taught to fly except by humans as best as they can in, a, in a, almost like a cage. And you know what happens. He soars. He lifts his wings up. He makes a few bumbling attempts, and then he just soars into the sky. And who does he join? A bunch of other pelicans that are flying. I mean, you can't beat that in Hollywood, you can you? No. But I would say it was my favorite film. And not because I'm a, you know, so original or whatever, but because I couldn't stop thinking about this bird. It was like an OCD thing. I mean, I just could not stop thinking about him. What is he doing? Did they give him his antibiotics? Did he eat? Remember, he didn't, you know, he had to be fed. He didn't know how to fish for socks. And they come down and they fish and they. But I don't even like pelicans. I learned a lot from talking to Sheila. First, that I better look up the term blue blood so I don't confuse rich people with dead people anymore. 
Second, that I don't have to be nice to everyone I work with, just my favorites. Sorry, producers, no more Mr. Nice Guy around here. And third, if comedy and podcasting don't work out for me, I'm going to become a talent agent for baby pelicans. But being serious, it was an honor to spend an hour of my life talking to Sheila Nevins. I was particularly fascinated by her explanations for how she dealt with power dynamics in an entertainment industry that was much less fair to women then than it is today, which is saying something. Sheila is a brilliant person who has been on earth longer than I have, but somehow takes herself even less seriously than I do. I hope when I'm a little older and looking back at my life, I can have the same perspective and humor that she does. I'm lucky to count her as one of my role models. It's time to hear a voicemail from one of our listeners. As always, I haven't heard this voicemail yet. But I do know who it's from. Nicholas Christoph, New York Times columnist, Pulitzer Prize winner, and friend of the pod. Here's Nicholas. In the fall of 1978, I showed up at Harvard as a freshman, having never been to the place uh, as a farm kid from Oregon who felt totally out of place. I didn't know what an alligator shirt was until I saw every other student wearing them. But I think a couple of things uh, helped me adjust. First of all, while other students no doubt felt a huge superiority to me, I felt a certain superiority to them. I loved my little rural high school and, uh, and loved farm country. And also I found a few niches. Um, like the school newspaper, uh, where I could um, find a home and thrive and feel that sense of belonging. And ultimately, I felt that way about the school as a whole. Thank you, Nicholas, for this message. Well, I can relate to this story because when I went into medical school, I could not relate to the school, to the people, to the whole environment. Everybody was there, like, wanting to be nerds having like the i mean i was a nerd myself but i also wanted to have fun i didn't have a decent social life in medical school so i always had to seek it somewhere else i know i i, I sound like someone who wanted to play but i needed what would complete me as as a human i needed to communicate to connect with people who were like-minded and i didn't find that and i was always looked at or looked upon at as a and not just an outsider but an alien I came from this English-speaking school with other people who were coming from like die-hard Arabic schools who were very uh, into uh, studying and into nerding out. And I thought that everybody was taking themselves too seriously. And I think that was the beginning of how alienated I was from medicine in general. And that's the end of season one of Remade in America. Thank you for listening to our first nine episodes. Wait, what? You haven't listened to all nine? If not, you should go back and listen to Cameron Esposito and Maria Inahosa and Preet Barara and Barack Obama. Yes, he's in there somewhere. Okay, fine. I just said that to make you listen to more episodes of my podcast. We didn't get Obama yet. But Barack, if you're listening, please come on my show. And next season is coming up soon. For now, thanks to everyone who helped make season one happen including the good people at Cafe and Yon Hum Media, all of my guests, all the people who called and left voicemails or sent me emails. And of course, the biggest thank you goes to all of you, my listeners. We couldn't do this show without you. No, seriously, 
Ask our advertisers. Downloads matter. The good news, we will be back with season two, quicker than you can say Basim Yusuf. Well, not literally. That's just an expression. It only takes a few seconds to say Basim Yusuf. But maybe we will be back before you can say my name a million times? Either way, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more episodes. One final time for this season, here's our theme song and credit roll. If you have an outsider story or a question for me, or want to suggest a topic that we cover on this show, tweet at me or call me at 785-4-BASIN. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every good review makes it easier for new listeners to find this show. Remade in America is presented by CAFE and produced by Neon Hum Media. Our show producer is Vikram Patel, editorial support from Ashley Cleek, production support from Palavi Kotamasu. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Our theme song is by Beethoven Music. And special thanks to Jeff Eisenman. I'm Basim Yusuf. Talk to you soon.